Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group. I'm Chris Burke, a physical therapist, and I serve as the chair-elect of the DDSIG. So I'm excited to be here today with Mike Studer to talk about fear avoidance behaviors and potential interventions. Um, So welcome, Mike, and thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, who you are and your professional background. Okay, uh, so I've been a PT for 32 years, and I've had a quite varied background from inpatient rehab, skilled nursing, home health, but primarily I've been an outpatient rehab therapist, owned my own practice for 18 years, and now I still do outpatient work focused in neurology, geriatrics, and I also serve as adjunct uh, on a couple of different universities and have uh, really found my way part-time into academia, dabble a little bit in research and do a lot of continuing education in the U.S. and abroad. So that's terrific. Yes, it sounds like you're you're a little bit everywhere. Yes. So this podcast is actually a continuation of a recent podcast we did with Merrill Landers and Ryan Duncan, where they got to discuss um, their CSM presentation which was called Mind Over Movement, Fear Avoidance Behaviors Impacting Movement and Participation in Parkinson's Disease. So they they shared some excellent information uh, with us related to fear of falling, avoidance behaviors, and why this can be maladaptive. So um, I know we're going to talk mostly about interventions, but I was wondering before we got into that, if you could maybe add to the previous discussion and speak a little bit more about fear and anxiety versus fear and the role of fear, how it relates to motor control. Oh, wow. That's fabulous. I love that to be our kickoff question too. And I'll have to say, I got a chance to listen to Ryan and Merrill's podcast with you. And I was very impressed. I got a chance to learn some things. uh, And I really like the framework of, uh, you know, really the individuals that are perhaps becoming too avoidant and those individuals that maybe don't have enough self-awareness and are a little bit too risk-taking. So uh, I definitely want to key off of that. And I, I love that portion of it. But let's take your second portion of your question on right now. And let's really see if we can contrast the consideration of what is fear, which appears to be something that is healthy for us as humans. Uh, It gives us a sense of what to avoid, what dangers might be affront us. And certainly we use our episodic memories and our declarative memories to understand fear uh, and experiences in the past so that we don't commit uh, something that could be life-threatening or injurious in the future. However, contrasting that with anxiety. Anxiety appears to be something that is not as healthy and not as helpful as fear is of itself. And if you think about these on a little bit of a continuum, that's okay. We're starting to understand and position anxiety as something that is is more uh, destructive to us. So fear, clear and present danger, something that I need to avoid and could realistically happen, anxiety It is occupying my mind more frequently and more significantly than what it should be. Uh, Just to give you a brief summary of the contrast between those two. So that's great. You know, you think about 
fear avoidance behaviors that we learned about last time. And it sounded so similar to me about when we hear about fear avoidance due to pain or dizziness that we see with some of those um, patients. And I've always found those patients often have an internal focus that they're sometimes hypervigilant about their symptoms and maybe somewhat catastrophizing. Do you find the same thing with people who have fear of falling avoidance behaviors? Yeah. And I really appreciate the way you frame that, uh, Christina, because uh, whether it be falling, pain, incontinence, etc., you're exactly right. The internal focus appears to be something that is a commonality, right? And so I'll certainly take your point. Yes, we find that internal focus to be elevated for these individuals, especially uh, in consideration of your question about fear of falling. Imagine in someone who knows that they have caught their right foot on a carpet or on a threshold once, and now now is actually thinking about it almost every single step. And we think about the optimal theory of motor learning and how damaging uh, internal focus can be. It's occupying some of our attention, which already creates fear as a dual task, uh, which isn't necessarily the healthiest when your basal ganglia center of automaticity is impaired. So a resounding yes, and the internal focus is something that gives us an opportunity to position our treatments then also to intervene and to be able to help through this uh, cognitive behavioral exposure and even acceptance uh, and uh, commitment therapy to be able to use these strategies to draw them away from the internal focus. Right. Yeah. We're trying to get their movements to become more automatic. And here they are thinking about every little thing that could be a problem and focusing on that, just like you said with the, the foot trip. Um, do you know of any yellow flags that we should look for to identify which of our patients might be at risk? You know, I think one of the best things to do right now is to talk about it with our patients and to find out uh, just give them an open space because we have the time as rehabilitation practitioners, more time than our colleagues in medicine and sometimes more time than our colleagues in nursing, uh, so that giving someone the space and feeling like you can even call it out by name. And, and I think one of the best ways to do this, Christina, is do so in a vicarious experience manner, uh, utilizing motivational interviewing as well. So finding the individuals that could have that yellow flag could be as simple as many individuals that I've worked with similar to you who have experienced multiple falls on a week uh, might have also told me that they're fearful of falling. Do you find yourself thinking about falling in advance? Do you think that you would be described as someone who has a fear of falling? That may be the easiest thing we can do right there is just take it down to a personal level and open up the door and give them permission to speak about it. Now, I shouldn't ignore that there's many good tools that we uh, could be using as well, but that would be my first move is just open up the door for conversation. Okay, great. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we get more into, into the intervention portion. But what I thought would be good, um, then the way I learn is to maybe do a small case. And I could talk to you about a patient I'm currently working with, right? And then we can use that as an example. I so, love it. Let's do it. So I'm working with a woman now. She has a diagnosis of both Parkinson's and she had a history of a stroke. And she is walking with, she uses a rollator and her goal is she'd like to use a straight cane um, and feel more confident. 
And on testing, she does have balanced deficits. So I wouldn't say some of her fear is probably, you know, appropriate, but interesting, like her ABC scale is 19%. So she has a very low confidence. But what happens is I'm trying to challenge her, right? Because we know that's what we want to do. And at the same time, keep her safe. And I maybe do some gait training with a, with a straight cane. And all of a sudden, she'll get panicky and she'll start, I feel so unstable. And she'll go to reach for walls or for me. And there wasn't really any sign of instability. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping that maybe you could give me some ideas of how to, you know, work with her and help her achieve her goals and Absolutely. I think I'll be able to give you three strong opportunities, and it could be that we'll use all three for this individual. The first thing that I would do on witnessing her, and I know you're not calling it freezing of gait, but really just freezing as a function of fear, Mm -hmm. is I might get her to a safe place and say, I noticed that you stopped moving there. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were experiencing when that happened and give her the opportunity to clarify to us what we think we're seeing when we're observing her movement? Is that fear or not? The second thing that I would like to do with her is I would give her the permission to tell us how much she does and doesn't like to be challenged. I love taking things to a very personal level clinically. So I might actually even say to her, when we're working together in the clinic, there may be occasions that I'll ask you to do something that's just barely outside of your reach. When that happens, can you tell me what your preference would be to repeat that task over again? Or would you like to, when something feels too difficult for you or challenging for you, would you like for me to shift tasks and move on to something else? Do you want a second attempt or or would you like to actually pivot away? So that gives her autonomy. She knows she's got control because we know a lot of times we have truly a fear of the unknown. How fast is the therapist going to take this treadmill? How heavy are they going to make the weights? How much are they going to let me lose my balance? Are they aware that I might fall backwards? Having the patient get a sense of we're aware of their fears and they get to control whether we go into a second challenge or not is really a lot of times controlling some of the unknown, providing autonomy, which we believe can lower cortisol uh, and also reduce some of that natural loop that we see uh you know, with the thalamus uh, and uh, and many other structures with fear, amygdala, uh, cingulate gyrus, etc. The third thing I would do is I would leverage some enhanced expectancies uh, so the individual can replace fear with reward. And that's one of the biggest things that we can do. We don't want to just expose to fear all the time. The literature tells us that we also want to try to replace the negative feelings with positive feelings. And that is this. So if I heard you correctly, she's using a rollator and she wants to transition to using a single point cane. So one of the things that we might be able to do is walk with her at her self-selected pace and actually see if she can, or maybe we would, that's probably more appropriate, count the number of steps she takes before she needs to either stop her motion uh, or she needs physical assistance. And then we track that, we gamify off of that, we celebrate that she made it 17 steps rather than her initial three steps, and we would go from there. So that gives me a dopamine rather than a cortisol to put things simplistic. Hopefully that gives us three separate things we did with her. She gets autonomy, she gets permission, she gets reward. 
That's great. Um, I like those things. And the, you know, the enhanced expectancy, like using knowledge of results, we do do that with her, right? We, she's been doing sit to stand as an exercise that she follows with at home and she's seeing how she's tracking and making improvements and the same with the walking. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's excellent. And one last thing, not to interrupt you there, but you know, you might have a midway bridge where rather than walking with two hands in the rollator walker in her transition toward walking with one hand at a single point cane, you could let her try to drive the rollator with one hand at a time to bridge that gap. I'm only using one arm for my balance assistance. Now that gives me that enhanced expectancy that I'll be able to use one hand in the future on a cane. Okay. Interesting. I'll have to try that. So, you know, we have reassessed her and she has made gains, which is great. I mean, she does work hard when she's with us, but I do have a sense that, you know, we talk about avoiding um, and I believe at home, she doesn't do as much, you know, in regards to her home exercise program and participation, even though she's a full-time aide. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was hoping, if, do you have, how would I encourage that you know, when she's fearful, when I'm not around, where she feels most safe? Yeah, that's a great question. There's several things to do there. One of the initial things that I go to is Dr. Debbie Espy's, uh, you know, rate of perceived stability scale uh, developed out of Cleveland State University of Ohio, where I might be able to say, okay, how difficult will are you comfortable in terms of balance challenges here in the clinic? Can you look at the scale? Okay, and she points to that and she shows me, you know, she's comfortable with a seven out of 10. And now I want to be considerate and I open this up to her and I say, overtly, I know things are a little bit different at home. Your therapist isn't here and maybe things can feel just a little bit more challenged sometimes. How difficult are you willing to challenge your balance at home? Let's consider that a different environment. And maybe she points to a four. Now, I'd like to see if we can come up with activities that you can do in your home that you would define as a four, including some of these home exercises that I've got prescribed for you for balance. So I want you to hold me accountable. The exercises that we're going to develop together that'll be helping you advance your balance, can you make sure that these seem reasonable and they fit within that comfort scale of a four on a scale of zero to 10 like you've done? So now we've done motivational interviewing. We've actually allowed her to have autonomy. And then hopefully she can collect up minutes, collect up activity, collect up successes, because now we've listened to her and we've actually made certain that our recommendation in our dosage is consistent with what her tolerance is. Um, another thing you could do, uh, obviously, is bring her caregiver in, one of her primary daytime caregivers in, uh, and make certain that we're modeling what level of uh, challenge in her balance or difficulty, intensity, if you will, that is uh, plausible and reasonable for her too. Those are all great suggestions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, when we had Ryan and Merrill, uh, last time on the other podcast, they were talking a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy and ACT, the acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and I was wondering, um, cause we didn't get a chance to go into more detail. If you could give some maybe specific examples of how you would use either of those techniques. Yeah, absolutely. And we know the literature on acceptance and commitment therapy is quite broad in the area of chronic pain. 
uh, or if we'd like to frame it as persistent pain. We know the evidence uh, has not been uh, at least unearthed at this point in fear of falling, but there appear to be a lot of correlates between the neuroscience of pain and the neuroscience of fear that give us reasonable expectations that we should be able to translate this into the clinic. Now, in keeping with your question, uh, in terms of applications, uh, one of the things that we like to start off with is giving people certainly that permission to talk about their fears, maybe even rate it. Um, Merrill introduced uh, a great tool that he is currently revising. And I like people to see their fear on paper so that we can also gamify and get some numbers for that. So once we start talking about it, uh, that actually starts off the exposure therapy and we get people the opportunity to accept. I have fear, commit, I'm going to do something consistently about this, and maybe even set a goal for this. Now, with that said, I think one of the complementary things that we can do as physical therapist practitioners is to give people the opportunity to truly habituate, and I'll use the term exposure therapy nearly interchangeably with habituation. We all know, uh, and this can be a lot easier to consume when we think about vestibular rehabilitation. All right, I'm going to have you do three to five repetitions of this. It's going to cause you to feel a little bit of nausea. That's okay. We can let your nausea come up about three points from where you are. Then we'll let it come back down again and we'll go for it. Now, if we really want to talk about applying this uh, exposure-based therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for fear of falling, that's exactly what we do. Now you've got the mindset of what we do. And we express that to the patient. Okay, we recognize you need to work on this fear. We'll replace that nausea. I want to allow us the opportunity to get your brain more comfortable with this so that it starts to feel like you can move and you're not dominated by fear. So we're going to give you some activities that cause you to elevate your fear a little bit. Then we'll bring it back down together. And so we use the exposure therapy in that manner. Okay. If therapists were more interested in getting more training on this, is there any resources that you know of or places they could go? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would have to tell you that I'm at uh, a limit for that as well myself. I do deep dives in the literature for right, for this right now. Acceptance and commitment therapy uh, doesn't have a lot of studies uh, or courses for degenerative diseases and in the neurologic population separate from pain. Uh, but I will tell you, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, appears to have uh, some tools available. Uh, and uh, And I can't tell you right now the uh, that there's a certification or anything like that, but I'll tell you the literature search uh, is most helpful. I go onto the National Library of Medicine, uh, and you know, with my keywords, I can find a lot, and then I just work on trying to apply those things. But uh, consistent with what Ryan and Merrill had said, I'll have to admit that we are not experts in this field. We don't need to develop ourselves into experts of it, but we need to actually look to our colleagues that are uh, experts and get a multidisciplinary approach for it. Mm. And it's interesting you're talking about the evidence. Has there been any research like using these techniques in physical therapy to help make behavioral changes that you know of? 
Yeah. So behavioral changes in physical therapy, I think, is starting to really explode right now. Uh, I look at the work for of Janet Besner. Uh, I look at uh, you know work from many other colleagues that have started to look at behavioral economics. Give people a nudge. Make it a, a choice very easy. Make a healthier choice uh, less burdensome. And so I would go probably to Besner's work, who comes first off the top of my head. Uh, and I think that is uh, something that we really need to elevate in terms of our capacity to practice at a level where we're understanding the true nature of human decision-making as it comes to fear uh, and as it comes to making more healthier choices in the positive realm toward increasing physical activity. Um, I know of work that is currently being done to work on behavioral economics and choice uh, that is increasing you know, physical activity adoption in the world of geriatrics, um, looking at obviously things that we all know, uh, and this can help us with, uh, you know, fear of falling, et cetera. As Merrill said, you know, steps per day is a predictive uh, of your fear of falling. And he talked about that, um, you know, so really taking a look at gamification toward my number of steps per day, um, really looking at uh, commitment devices. I've got somebody who's planning on exercising with me. They're coming to my house at 3.30, uh, looking at habit stacking, uh, looking at nudge, making things convenient for me to exercise and removing friction. All of those things have great reasonable uh, uh, roles for reducing fear then as well, because uh, the more we find ourselves uh, reminded of the fear, uh, the more that that Heb theory of neurons that fire together, wire together gets entangled. And so that's one of the primary things that we need to do uh, is to actually help these individuals experience success uh, rather than persistent reminders of the unwarranted fear. Um, it's interesting that you brought some of those topics up because I had read uh, you were in one of the APTA magazines where you were talking about the behavioral economics, right? And you talked about the nudge theory. Sure. So I was wondering if you could maybe give some more like specific examples, maybe go back to my case study or another patient you worked with of how you use that. Oh, absolutely. Let's go back to your case study right away. So when we have this individual who is wanting to transition to a cane, sometimes a nudge could be something as simple as the cane is nearby. Uh, the cane is available to be used, and that eliminates the friction of, can you go get my cane out of the closet? I want to try to think about walking with the cane a little bit home at, at home here right now. The, uh, the need to have to take another step uh, to get that cane out of the closet or ask the caregiver to go get it or remember to do that are, are all three levels of friction. Whereas if it's visually present, physically and geographically present, that's one good option right there. So that's, a, that's part of what I would look at for nudge. The other thing you look at with nudge is creating an opportunity so, so that some of the home exercises that you've prescribed can be done while she's walking in her home. Uh, okay, so now you're here in your hallway walking from your kitchen now down toward your bedroom, and you need to do that back and forth about six times per day. So I want you to choose three of the times that you traverse down that hallway and work on this exercise that will definitely be uh, instrumental toward your recovery. 
Walking with a rollator walker, you're going to turn your head side to side or whatever exercises you prescribe. Think about that convenience, geographic and temporal. Well, I'm already going to be walking down here. I might as well habit stack and throw uh, one of my exercises right on top of that. That's another way of looking at uh, the nudge, removing friction. I don't have to do anything extra. It's already right there. Mm -hmm. So you're having them work it into their lifestyle so they don't have to do that extra step. And so you would tell my patient, just keep the cane near you. Maybe you don't have the roll later. So convenient. Exactly. That, that would be a next step mm -hmm. if we're not crossing her personal boundaries for her fear. Right. So we would want to be considerate. Would you be comfortable if we move the walker for this healthy part of the afternoon when, you know, you could back up a little bit and say, tell me when you feel like you're at your best, when you've had your medications and you feel warmed up and you feel alert. Maybe we could select that time of the day to put your walker over into this room. Would this be a convenient time for you to have the cane nearby? And you ask her permission for that, again, giving her autonomy. And then you optimize uh, that being the time to nudge in the cane. Mm. You know, I think sometimes I've used nudge without even realizing it, um, like patients who say, well, I watch television, right? And I say, okay, on every commercial, you stand up and you do A, B, and C. Exactly. That's problem. one of my favorite things. Yeah. People fast forward through the commercials, right? So they come back with that. <laughs> exactly. So all the opportunities are there. I'm going to get the mail. I've got to brush my teeth. I could stand with my feet together. Um, I need to roll over to get out of bed. I could actually do five repetitions of bed mobility uh, as supine to sit, sit to supine, supine to sit, sit to supine. I could do that as a nice whole body exercise. That's nudged right there as well. So those are good examples of nudge there. Great. Great. All right. So was there any other points that you had wanted to make that were missing? You know, I think that it would be helpful to talk about two other things. I think the importance of looking at things in an optimistic viewpoint positively is very helpful. So I think building self-efficacy is something that we as therapists should be cognizant of. I mean, way back in 1977, Albert Bandura came up with this concept of self-efficacy. We know the presence of self-efficacy uh, is truly that ability to know that I have some control or some agency over my outcome and my quality of life. And we know that self-efficacy is predictive of outcomes, total knee replacement, coronary artery bypass graft, and many other conditions have been phenomenologically studied with self-efficacy. So we as therapists have to think, what can I do to improve my patient's self-efficacy? It goes beyond confidence. It means you have control over this. And I think one of the things that we can do best there is show them measurements, give them the plan for our intervention and their home exercise program, and then show them the re-measurements again and give them the opportunity to maybe connect the dots. We don't do this very well. You did this. You came to therapy. You did your home exercises and look at how much you improved. I'm wondering how much more do you think you can improve since you're already on this trajectory? So I'd like to actually put that in uh, individuals' minds. And then the other thing, since you asked, Christina, I think it's important for us to uh, continue to go back to the evidence uh, understand the development of, uh, you know, really what we know about neuroplasticity in a positive manner. 
uh, exercises ability to uh, release BDNF, etc. Exercises ability to be an anti-inflammatory agent, uh, and then also to uh, contrast that with the negative neuroplasticity that makes fear so much like the neuroscience of pain. I'll say one quick thing on this. Um, you know, really, we are just now starting to uncover this uh, this beautiful. Uh, agent that exercise can be to reduce inflammation. I'm just starting to understand that some of the negative neuroplasticity that occurs with fear uh, can actually be inflammatory based. Um, and you look at the cingulate gyrus and connections to the amygdala and et cetera, and it appears as though generalized exercise, high intensity, can help us with this. I'd have you look at the two different types of BDNF BDNF1 and 4, uh, and the uh, ability to be able to express this, again, preliminary information right now, and animal models right now, which has a lot of asterisks, appear that uh, we can inhibit that connection that causes fear uh, through exercise. Again, I want to caution, animal model, not neurodegenerative disease, but very promising there. And are we thinking more aerobic exercise or resistance exercise? Well, <laughs> that's what we think, right? Because more of the studies that have attempted to express human and animal BDNF out of convenience have been aerobic based. It's much easier to conduct that methodology with aerobic based exercises, but we don't know that strength won't do it. Power training, especially, may be a way in as well. Yeah. And does there have to be a challenge to it as well? Or could it just be you're burning calories on a treadmill walking, right? Apparently so. The intensity function uh, really seems to be the key. And that's our common thread. So, you know, it's premature to say this, but if we don't start talking about it, you know, then that type of knowledge can become forgotten. And we say, gosh, we learned this back in 2023 and we never really did anything about it for 10 to 15 years. And then somebody happens across that. So we've, we've got to give ourselves to look, you know, at things neurophysiologically, and we've got to be willing to make those studies and, and be willing to admit that we tried it and it didn't work, that the study uh, did not uh, pan out then as well or show statistically significant outcomes. Uh, but I'm excited about all of that. And I, uh, I've been practicing, like I said, for 32 years. I think I could practice for 30 more just based on how excited I am about uh, all of these realms. It is an exciting time in neuro-PT, I have to admit. It is. Um, going back to, you know, more of doing the high intensity, and we know that challenge is helpful. You know, thinking back on my case, my patient, I would like to challenge her more, right, and do more high intensity. But you had said, well, ask her how comfortable she is. And I'll tell you, she'll say, I'm not. I wanted, she'll always go to the easier to the less yeah. challenging, right? I've <laughs> got, I've got a trick for you there, job. though. I've got it. I, I love the fact that I'm given this opportunity. I love the fact that you're challenging me with a case here today. This is great. Uh, this is one of the things I, I love about live continuing education is having somebody in the audience ask you a question. Here's what I would offer you two different opportunities. Okay. And what's her first name, if I may, or make one up? B. Okay. All right. B. 
So B, I would like to get you up on the treadmill today. And I know that that can be an area where we can get a lot of good practice and good repetitions in on your walking. And we can do it in a nice controlled environment where you've got the bars of the treadmill here and I can be right next to you. What I'd like to do is let you operate the treadmill today. And let me show you, just turn it on with the green button here and then use the up arrow. And I want you to just use the up arrow to a point where you feel like the treadmill is operating at the same speed that you would normally walk at on the ground, okay? And let's take a couple of moments to do that. And then I wanna let you know, even though it is very much evident in our work together that we've got to elevate things and we got to make things a little bit difficult for you to get you better. I want you to be in control of how much the intensity goes up today. You're in control of the treadmill. And you notice this is really a heavily contrast with what we normally do in therapy. Oh, we're going to put you at 2.3 miles an hour. And then for 30 seconds, we're going to put you at 3.1. Then we'll bring you back down to 1.6. Well, for a person that's fearful, that is just, that's just, yeah. that's terror. But if we give B the controls, I think you'll find, Christina, that she will probably exceed the levels that you would have actually started with because you're going to you're going to reduce how much you'd like to turn the treadmill up because you know you're working with B. But if you give her the opportunity to have the autonomy, she starts it at 1.1. And then you say, B, just take it up a little bit higher if you feel like it's becoming too easy for you and let her have that opportunity. Uh, and then say, now take it all the way back down to 0.8. And then when you're ready, try to go up a little bit higher. And then we can always control it back down again. It's very easy to do. That's one way to let the patient have control over that type of autonomy. However, I'll give you a very quick and related concept if she doesn't like the treadmill, because I'm guessing B does not like the treadmill, but uh, no, I don't want to put her on the treadmill and, and it hasn't worked yet. So, I'm happy that, but that might be good is if she gets control. The second thing is take any type of recumbent stepper, uh, you know, recumbent elliptical or what have you and do the same exact thing. We know that you're safe here in the and you're surrounded by this chair, but we also know that intensity is beneficial to help boost your brain toward better things. Show me what it looks and feels like for you to pedal this naturally, normally, and easily. And then when you're ready, show me what it feels like to pedal it almost as hard as you can. And so that can be a nice, easy way to blend autonomy with the evidence of HIT and give her that full permission. And I found time and time again, the patients with uh, apathy, the patients with self-deprecating comments, the patients that appear to be amotivated, you give them the opportunity to ramp it up and ramp it down at their pace and time frame, and they exceed what I would have dosed in for them. Okay. Um, I'm writing it all down as we speak. All right. Or you're recording it either way, right? <laughs> <laughs> true, true. All right. So, so before we wrap up, if I were to ask you to tell me what you think from everything we've talked about, the most important takeaway that a clinician can use tomorrow in the, you know, in their practice, what would that be? I'm too often a man of many, many words. You know that because I, I roll on with a four minute answer on something. So I'm going to keep this simple. All right. I want clinicians to think about exposure therapy for fear, similar to habituation therapy for vestibular. Let's bring that one back down. We've said it twice. Let's say it one last time. 
and let's uh, let's understand there's physiology in that. Great. Okay. Um, you know that that always leads me to another question, and oh, I'm it's totally fine. So you say you know like exposure. So expose them where they feel safe to the things that they're worried about. Is that kind of if you absolutely? Let's go back to B. B. Wow, you almost got that one. Would you like another attempt at that right now while it's fresh? Or would you like us to move away from that and come back to it again? So they get to permit and close the door to another repetition or nudge it back open again. Yeah, I'd like to go ahead and try that one more time. We know that neurophysiologically, the same activity experience um, can be, uh, we blunt the next action potential with subsequent repetitions. So if we let our patients know that, might maybe, you know, just like it is with pain, oh, that wasn't so painful the fourth time you did it. Maybe it won't be so fearful the third time you do it, and it won't cause you so much nausea the fifth time you do it. We tell them about that neurophysiologically, and that's exactly what we're looking at there. Yeah, they permit the next repetition. That's great. That's a that's a great final point. Thank you. Thank you. So we have a tradition here on the DDSIG podcast that we like to ask you what you do in your spare time when you're not doing things that are physical therapy related. All right. So please share that with us. Okay. Well, I'm an endurance athlete junkie. So whatever I'll do in my spare time is going to be called hiking, running, biking, swimming, weightlifting. Uh, and those are the things that I love to do. I'm, I guess I'm a dopamine junkie, but I do all of those things. Uh, and I, I'll tell you, I'm, a, this, I'm ashamed to say this right now, though. I am very risk averse. <laughs> so I don't bike downhills at 50 miles an hour. Uh, I don't run, uh, you know, uh, in uh, traffic laden areas. Uh, I don't downhill ski. So it's a tough thing to say after we've spent an hour together talking about fear, et cetera. Fear I, <laughs> that's right. I go out and do, 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 but I manage my activity so that I can continue to do this, hopefully, when I'm 110 and maybe I can actually run a mile and set a world record. But I, I am not a speed junkie. I'm just a an activity junkie. Well, we know that fear has is can be protective in some instances, right? And in your sense, it, it keeps you safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for permitting me that out. So I appreciate that latitude. Thanks for joining us today. And we'd like to give a special thanks to our guest, Mike Studer, for chatting with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. 4D is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Our podcast team includes Parm Pageant, Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Ken Venaco, Jeffrey Schmidt, and Carly Havard. And I'm Chris Burke. Please subscribe to our newsletter on the AMPTA website, neuropt.org, or follow us on social media. And please share this episode with a friend or colleague. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay of the PT Pinecast for providing music. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Excellent. Well, I, I, did we hit any bloopers, though? Oh, don't worry. There's always going to be bloopers. I think we'll get a few in there. Okay, good. Good. Yeah.
And it doesn't surprise me that you're an endurance junkie. I have a feeling you're standing during our whole podcast, are you? Yes, but you know what? If we would have been able to record it in the first place that I had where my internet connection wasn't good, I was going to be on a stationary bike very (laughs) quietly in the background. (laughs) Well, you're very good at stacking your habits there, right? You get, you know multitasking so yeah well the first half of the podcast i stood only on my right leg and then the second half the pot and no, i'm just kidding you <laughs> i listen to all podcasts at 2x speed I and do this so. is do you really well, this I is do gonna 1. be a little five. Oh, you do 1.5 yeah. this is gonna be a little bit odd for me uh to listen to myself at 2x speed and 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 listening to you at 1x speed because i've listened to all the dd sig podcasts you're interviewing me at 1x speed i was kind of used to hearing your voice at 2x so i'm thrown off by this <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i am a new yorker so i talk fast so i can only imagine what i am at two point something speed it's good. You ought to listen to Jimmy McKay's intro outro music at 2x speed. That... <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I'm 1.5 with you, Chris, but my husband hates, like, when we turn on, like, a fun podcast, he hates when it's sped up at all so that it slows down. And I'm like, what's happening? Oh, gosh, it's, it's like, totally like, different. Uh... Yeah. That was on the back of your chair, the Star Wars guy. Okay, so I'm in my daughter's room, and this is my son's blanket. So... Oh, nice. Yes. It was like he was like looking over your shoulder in the podcast. <laughs> okay, we should be much better and 100% now.